Welcome to Conversations on the Coast, the Bay Area's premier author interview program. And today is what I deem a very, very big day for Conversations on the Coast, because one of my favorite writers, who's also one of the best authors around, is with us today. Her name is Anne Perry, and she's going to talk about her new novel, Dorchester Terrace, which is another Charlotte and Thomas Pitt novel published by Ballantine Books. Thanks for coming by. Oh, my great pleasure. I want to start with numbers. Okay. By by most recent count now, this is number 27 in uh, a 27th novel featuring Charlotte and Thomas Pitt. And we just heard from the powers that be in New York City that it's going to be number 15 on the Times bestseller list this coming Sunday, to, for which we extend our congratulations. Thank you very much indeed. It's it's a makes me feel really, really happy. And it's, it is such good news, particularly when you're out doing the long hours of a tour and being discombobulated <laughs> in your life the way that does. And, and then to get that kind of good news, I think it helps. Well, actually, I feel very, very fortunate indeed. I love touring America. I've had, I could entertain you for half an hour with the happy experiences I've had already, and I've only been out for oh, a week. Good, good. This, this to me, uh, in, in terms of uh, the uh, Charlotte and Thomas Pitt books, is, is one that's, uh, that, that, that's full of changes. Uh, Pitt, to begin with, is no longer if you will, a simple policeman. He's he's now head of, of something called the... Uh, Special Branch. Special Branch. What is that? Well, it was originally uh, created to deal with the Irish problem, and then it went on to deal with any threat to the state. And in the 90, 1890s, what else is new? We had a lot of threats of anarchy and bombings and uh, our own version at the time of terrorism. Mm-hmm. And it's to deal with any threat to the safety of the state. And why I wanted him to do this, apart from the fact he can't be doing the same thing all the time, if you have a successful policeman detective who's always solving his cases, he's going to get promoted. Correct. And then he'll be promoted right out of solving cases into pushing paper, and that's not a story. Not at all. So uh, I give him some disasters to stretch his character and courage and ability to adapt. Yeah, if you did the one about pushing papers, it'd be like an angst novel. <laughs> yes, I'd, we've got enough angst. I don't need to act. <laughs> don't it. need to do no. that. Um, he started off uh, a little while ago in Special Branch when he got thrown out of the police, and he had to start learning it. And then through um, a series of disasters that happened in the previous book, mm-hmm. uh, treason. It's treason at Listen Grove in either Britain or American, and the other one it's betrayal. But Listen Grove anyway. And now he is head of Special Branch. And my reason for doing that was because I was thinking about some of the secret trials that we've had in Britain in the past, particularly if you're trying somebody who is guilty of treason. Mm -hmm. You can't try them in open or you might as well, you can't accuse somebody of betraying state secrets and then try them for the state secrets in public. You're betraying them to everybody that didn't know if there's still anybody left. So you have to deal with it in secret. And my brother said to me, oh, for heaven's sake, they don't do that these days. They would just quietly dispose of them. Uh And I thought, Oh, of course, you're right. But what a decision to have to make, because Pitt has always been a very moral man who is happy to discover who did what and why and to find the evidence to prove it, then leave it to somebody else to uh, try it, make sure that the evidence is right, weigh, accuse, defend, etc., and then the jury decides and then the judge passes sentence. 
Now he has to find the evidence, decide, pass sentence and carry it out himself. And since he's now head of special branch, he has nobody beyond him to refer to. And it would be very nice to stand by and not make a decision. But if you do that and the person is guilty, anything they do after that, because you didn't stop them, is on your doorstep. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Not to act is a very big decision also. Not as important, perhaps, to most people, but important to me. Another change here is that Gracie is gone. And Gracie is replaced by a person with the name Minnie Maud Mudway. Well, Gracie had to marry Tellman. You can't keep them hanging on forever. She is now so respectable. She has her own house. She has her own house, And she probably has a maid who works for her. Oh, my goodness. Well, probably. Everybody did in those days. You either were the maid or you you had one. And, you know, you couldn't keep them stringing along on on the edge of the precipice forever. Um, I know, but I'm 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 very miss, glad that that yeah. you at least make a reference to her, and and I think at one point you either make a phone call to her or you're supposed to. She doesn't to. have a telephone. Oh, I'm sorry. I think they go visit her. I think. Yeah, I think you're supposed to visit her, or she's supposed to visit. Yes, but uh, actually, Minnie Maud Mudway is an ancestor of a friend of mine who's very keen on genealogy. She said, here's a wonderful name for you. I thought, that's marvellous. It's too good to miss. (laughs) But one of the Christmas novellas features Gracie and Minnie Maud Mudway. Both of them? Yes, two little girls. As little girls, Gracie's about 13 and Minnie Maud's about eight. And Minnie Maud is in terrible trouble because her uncle, whatever his name was, um, has disappeared but even more agonizing than that, the donkey who pulled the, the dust cart that he had, Rack yeah, Bone Man, yeah. the donkey's disappeared as well. Oh, my goodness. And you've got to find, I think the donkey's name is Charlie. They do find it. Of course they find the donkey in the end. And it's it's a Christmas story, so the donkey is the one on which Mary rides into Jerusalem in the nativity. Definitely. And Mary, in this particular case, is Charlotte, and that's the beginning of a long and happy relationship. <laughs> oh, good Lord. <laughs> One of the other radical changes is what you already talked about, the fact that uh, Pitt is no longer... That's a much darker change. ...solving something, but now he's got... He also has to act on it. Yeah, many, many more responsibilities and of, uh, of, of a different kind. And worst of all, he's in a new job, lots of stuff coming on him, and he can't really talk to Charlotte about it. No, he can't because it's secret stuff. That's nasty of you. I'm very nasty person when it comes to dealing with my main characters. If you don't stretch people, yes. um, what's the story about? <laughs> well, let's see what else gets stretched. Dorchester Terrace is about much more than fascinating characters and changes. How about treason, a possible train wreck, and murder? Stay tuned. You're listening to Conversations on the Coast with Jim Foster. Follow us on Twitter at Jim Foster COC or send an email to Jim Foster COC at gmail.com. Welcome back. I, I think if I said Ann Perry's here, you out there would say, oh, another great book. And you're right. This book is called Dorchester Terrace. It's yet another Charlotte and Thomas Pitt novel by Ann Perry, and it's published by our friends at Ballantine Books and Publishers Weekly, the Bible of Books in America, says the, this long-running series hasn't run out of steam. 
and Perry breathes new life into it by giving her capable lead new responsibilities and new challenges. And we kind of talked about that part of it in the first segment. One of the other things you've done is to create at least one character that left me with the question, is it possible that this character existed in real time in Fantasy Echo Europe? And that character is Serafina Montserrat. Tell us about her, where she comes from in your mind. <laughs> uh, so far as I know, uh, there have been many of this sort of person, but I'm not modeling out any, any real one. Okay. She's somebody who has been at the core of secret uh, life scandals, political um, shenanigans, revolutions, and so forth. She's known almost everybody who's anybody, been mistress to a good few of them. But she is failing now. And her mind is touched with Alzheimer's or something like it. She knows all kinds of secrets. And in the past, everybody knew she would keep her mouth closed and guard them. But now that she's beginning to fail and to lose her memory and not know whether she's in the present or the past, she is terrified that she is going to let slip something because she has forgotten when and where she is and to whom she's speaking. And that's the deep, tragic aspect yes. of this character, this, the, the, the sense that uh, she could possibly betray people that she would never, ever want to betray. And, of course, she is very afraid of the moral responsibility of having betrayed somebody, but the actual life-threatening possibility that somebody else might know she's losing it and decide to silence her before she does anything like this. She's amazing. And yet this could happen. And so far as I know, there's nobody who knows that they're going to be immune from that. It can strike the most brilliant people. Mm -hmm. And she was brave and daring and noble and stood up for what she believed in. She could ride the horses like any men and wield a sword with the best of them. Yes. Huh? And shoot and shoot. Yes. argue her way out of things. She was never as beautiful as Vespasia, but she could outright and outshoot a good few men and of course she has enemies anybody who's everybody's friend is nobody's friend <laughs> very good advice <laughs> very good advice you know one of the things that doesn't change in my mind in uh, Dorchester Times with respect to the other novels in the series and I, and I find this maddening and that is the, the whole class distinction stuff that Pitt has to deal with over and over and over again. He goes to see somebody in the government, and he's made to wait longer, it seems to me, than anybody should be made to wait with his title and his responsibilities. Whatever he says to the fellow in government is looked at askance, initially at least. Uh, you know, who the heck are you? You're the son of a, of a gameskeeper. Gamekeeper, yes. Yeah. A gamekeeper, somebody and, who looks after the shooting. And yeah, the, and like it's he'll never get out of there, get out of that box. It, do you think that uh, that has ever changed anywhere? I mean, it may be based on birth or it might be based on your race or uh, your family name or the money you have or the education or whether you're beautiful or ugly. We all have our different ways of, of um, categorizing people, but they say that if you made everybody equal at breakfast, we'll have formed our hierarchies by lunchtime. Look at the chicken yard. Any herd of animals. Yeah. We do it. Yeah. 
It's it's like natural. It seems to be, and I don't think birth is a good way to to categorize people. But then I don't think color of your skin is either, or gender, or any of the other things we use. Certainly not how much money you inherited. It's it, it's marvelous that you put this in a book because it, it becomes very very clear that something that should not distinguish a person or hold a person back is what happens day oh, in yes. and day out. That's different different but things. How many people do you think might have had an opportunity, as far as their intellect was concerned, of achieving great things, but they were held down by class or gender or race or some other distinction which shouldn't matter but does? Mm. I remember when I first started working, I was paid less for doing exactly the same job as the man beside me. And I didn't think to ask, well, where can I find a shop where they sell me stuff cheaper because I'm a woman? I thought of that too late. <laughs> well, the time here in this book is February 1896. As we've described as a newly minted head of special branch, uncomfortable handling, among other things, the socializing aspects he of, learns. His, of his new job. Mm, under yes. the tutelage, of course, of, of Charlotte. Charlotte. Yes. Yes. Mm. yes. And... And 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 as a, and, and he can't share things with her, which which is a big problem. And uh, then things start to cook, but it, it, it's all rumors. It's yes. all maybe, whispers. yeah, whispers and maybes. Yeah, and he's trying to get people's attention because what he's beginning to see is two things: an assassination, yes, and a train wreck. Yes, you're a devil. Yes. <laughs> so we will, you know, when we do interviews together, I always have this problem. You know, where do I go from here? I've, I've given a couple of essential plot points. And do I stop? Do we continue? See, this is like, this is like suspense, at least for me. Well, good. That shows you're very good at what you do, as if we didn't know. <laughs> We're going to have one more segment together. We'll delve into this a little bit more, but I want to start the next segment with the voice of the author reading her own words. Don't miss it. You're listening to Conversations on the Coast with Jim Foster. Follow us on Twitter at Jim Foster COC or send an email to Jim Foster COC at gmail.com. Today on Conversations on the Coast, we're feeling privileged, we're feeling honored because Ann Perry is here to talk about the latest Charlotte and Thomas Pitt novel titled Dorchester Terrace. And there's a, there's a character here uh, in, in this book that almost slips by. Many pages are spent belittling this character, uh, a no-account not good for anything aristocratic count. Well, that's because they wonder why on earth would anybody want to assassinate him. It's pointless. He's not, <laughs> what, he's no, what's his name? I love his name, too. Say, Alois. Alois. Yes, Habsburg. <laughs> and on and on it goes, who would want to kill this fellow? He ain't worth doing. And yet, there's a lot more to him, as we find out. A great deal more. And... Um, I had a lot of fun with him. Good. I, I really enjoyed... I, I get very fond of my characters. In fact, I don't think I've ever written a character that I didn't have a little bit of fellow feeling with, even the worst of them. Oh. 
So what is it you like about Alois? His panache, his ability to put himself out of the picture and yet still do all sorts of things, and he's very good-natured. Mm-hmm. He looks like a twerp, but uh, he, actually he isn't, and so many people are self-important and have to be looked at, yeah. have to be the centre of the picture. It takes somebody whose mind finds what they're doing more important than they are themselves in order to step back and do it quietly. Mm-hmm. One of the things that continues on in this book, and it, it isn't different, it just continues to be to build, uh, and, and that is Charlotte's character. Yes. And I want you to read something which I think talks a lot about Charlotte, the kind of woman she is, kind of the, the, the kind of character. And the setting is she has arrived home and... She's begin. She's looking for uh, Minnie Maud. Minnie Maud Mudway, the new maid who's replaced Gracie, who was at last married Tellman, and has now got her own home and totally respectable lady. Yeah, we'd better get a book with her at home. <laughs> she must be in the cellar. It was the only place left. But Charlotte had been home a quarter of an hour. Why on earth would Minnie Maud be in the cellar for that length of time? There was nothing down there that could take so long to collect. It would be perishing cold. She opened the door. The light was on. She could see its dim glow from the top step. Had Minnie Maud slipped and fallen here? She went down quickly now, holding onto the handrail. Minnie Maud was sitting on a cushion in the corner, a blanket wrapped around her, and in her arms was a small, dirty and extremely scruffy little dog with a red ribbon around its neck. Minnie Maud and the puppy both looked up at her with wide, frightened eyes. Charlotte took a deep breath. For goodness sake, bring it upstairs into the kitchen, she said, trying to keep the overwhelming emotion inside her under some kind of control. Relief, pity, a drowning comprehension of Minnie Maud's loneliness and all the conflicting feelings for Adriana and for Serafina, everything to do with need and loss churned in her mind. And wash it, she went on, it's filthy. I suppose one can't expect it not to be living in the coal cellar. Minnie Maud climbed to her feet slowly, still holding the dog. You'd better give it some dinner, Charlotte added. Something warm. It's very young by the look of it. Are you going to put it out? Minnie Maud's face was white with fear. She held the animal so tightly it started squirming around. I dare say the cats won't like it, Charlotte replied obliquely, but they'll just have to get used to it. We'll find it a basket. Wash it in the scullery sink. It'll have coal dust all over the place. Minnie Maud took a long, shuddering breath and her face filled with hope. Charlotte turned away to go up the stairs. She did not want Minnie Maud to think she could get away with absolutely anything. Does it have a name? she asked huskily. Uffy, Minnie Maud said, but you can change it if you want to. Uffy seems perfectly good to me, Charlotte replied. Bring her, or is it him, upstairs, and don't put her down until you get to the scullery, or you'll spend the rest of the day getting coal dust out of the carpets, and we'll all have no dinner. I'll carry her to the kitchen. Minnie Maud promised fervently, and I'll see she don't make a mess anywhere, I promise. She's ever so good. She won't be, Charlotte thought, not when she's warm enough and properly fed, and realises she can stay, but maybe that's better. She's your responsibility, she warned, as she held the cellar door open. Minnie Maud walked through into the hall, still holding the dog close to her, her face shining with happiness. That's so Charlotte. I mean, she's, she's so practical and, and loving. At, at at the same time, I mean, she, I mean, she could have thrown that dog out 
In I a, couldn't have. In if she'd done man. that, she'd have been out of the book. <laughs> bye bye, Charlotte. Yeah. <laughs> oh, good Lord. Lady Vespasia, coming goal. Oh, one of my very, very favorite characters. I'll tell you something very sad. When I first started out with the first Charlotte and Pitt book, yeah. published in 1979, I identified with Charlotte. As time went by, I identified with her mother. Now I identify with Lady Vespasia. Mm, you're maturing. <laughs> not quite the way she has done, unfortunately, but I'm trying. Well, your life has probably not been quite as adventurous. Not quite as fortunate as hers, and I don't think I've as accomplished as much. But um, I certainly wasn't the greatest beauty of my generation, but dreams are free. To me, to you, to anybody. Well, but the book, I think in this book, you make the point that, you know, beauty is a, is a many splendid thing, yes. as we used to yes. sing. And and uh, not all of it is what you see on the outside. No, it isn't. Much of it is character, courage, strength. And the older you get, the more it is. Uh, I remember the saying that when you're young, you have the face that nature gave you. When you're older, you have the face you deserve. <laughs> oh, wow. I'm going to go look in the mirror now <laughs> and see. And see how see, good you've been. See where I am. Uh, Pitt has one trusted person in his service at, yes. at his new job. Stoker. A fellow who, and there was, there's no first name for Stoker that I can I remember. haven't given him a first name yet. No, he's just Stoker. It's Stoker. And whenever he knocks, he can come in. Yes. Yeah. Because in Treason and Listen Grove, you will know why he is trusted. Okay, I got to go home and read up on why Stoker is trusted. And I'll do that with great pleasure. And how Pitt got to be in that position, and why Narraway no longer is. Oh, goodness gracious. I have a lot of homework to do. But I'll do it because it's You're always stoic. a pleasure. It's always a pleasure to read Anne Perry for books like Dorchester Terrace. This has been Conversations on the Coast, and I'm Jim Foster. Follow us on Twitter at Jim Foster COC. Or send an email to jimfostercoc at gmail.com.